Welcome to the Lean Solutions Podcast, where we discuss business solutions to help listeners develop and implement action plans for true lean process improvement. I am your host, Patrick Adams. Hello and welcome to the Lean Solutions Podcast. Today's guest is Jonathan Andel. Jonathan is an accomplished operational excellence leader and an exceptional instructor, coach, and mentor in all aspects of Lean, Six Sigma, and continuous improvement. Jonathan is a master black belt with a track record of millions of dollars of bottom line impact across many organizations in multiple industries. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. So, Jonathan, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Let's let's hear a little bit about your background so everybody can get comfortable with who you are and, and what you've been up to over the last few years. Okay, thank you. Um, in terms of uh, college degrees, whatever that's worth, uh, my, my college degrees are in engineering. Uh, I was in the oddball specialty of metallurgical engineering. So I, uh, I got my bachelor's at Purdue, and then uh, I went to Penn State where I obtained my master's and my missus. Uh, and uh, uh, then, then I, I tried to earn an honest living. Uh, but uh, a few years later, instead of an, earning an honest living, I found Lean and Six Sigma instead. Mm. So uh, now, <laughs> you know how that is. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, I was, you know, in college I had taken a few stats classes, and I was lucky enough to have a, a really good instructor who kept the pragmatic and the useful part of it uh, attached to the theoretical. Sure. Uh, so I, I saw the connection to what I was doing, and I, I dabbled with it for a while, and then I was at Motorola when Bill Smith came up with the term Six Sigma, mm. and uh, as I like to say, the rest is history. I, I signed up for the first opportunity. Um, for those who know the name Michael Harry, I was fortunate enough to actually get uh, my training directly from Mike. Uh, That's amazing. Was, uh, yeah, he was a uh, very, very charismatic, very knowledgeable, and uh, I like to say it's it's a good thing he's a basically honest person because he could have saw, sold uh, ice to Eskimos. Oh wow! Uh, but uh, but he was he was passionate about it. Uh, good. Perhaps controversial to some people, but I, I saw the good in Mike. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, once I once I got there, it was like I found my calling, and and it's been you know going crazy ever since. Um, while I was uh, officially a Six Sigma practitioner, somebody exposed me to the books of Shigeo Shingo. Uh, at the time, I thought that was just part of Six Sigma. I didn't realize that somebody had uh, drawn you know, battle lines in the sand and said, this is lean and that's Six Sigma. Mm -hmm. It was all just sides of one coin, and that's still my outlook. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you, you use what you use when the situation calls for it, and you don't worry too much about uh, whose camp the label comes from. All right, that's right. So, you, so that's that's actually really interesting because most people that I talked to uh, learned about lean first and then Six Sigma after, uh, you know, just based on historically how lean was rolled out and how Six Sigma was rolled out. Uh, sure. So I th think you're one of the first people that I've talked to that actually learned Six Sigma first and then learned about lean after. Yeah, uh, except for one anecdote, uh, before I officially became uh, a, a Six Sigma practitioner, my wife was getting her MBA at Arizona State and uh, 
for one of her various research projects, uh, she uh, looked at the what ended up being a spaghetti diagram of uh, Burger King and McDonald's at the time, ah. and the floor plan spaghetti diagram for fulfilling an order of, uh, you know, hamburger fries and a Coke. Right. And uh, obviously, in those days, uh, McDonald's uh, had, uh, you know, things moving already in smooth and flow and consistent manner, and and the Burger King map, it, it looked a little bit like trying to track a ball in a pinball machine. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so I, I was getting exposed to that stuff, and I, I had believed in, in empowered employees, which uh, is one of the reasons I even uh, applied for Motorola. Mm. Um, but I didn't get a formal dipping into the language of lean until, uh, I guess, officially when somebody... Uh, lent me their uh, their book from Shingo about mm -hmm. uh, single minute exchange of die. Ah, yes. And, uh, and then you know, as I learned more, I've I've certainly been involved in both parts of it. Sure. I still I still use both toolkits whenever and wherever I need. Very nice. I'm I'm excited to talk a little bit more about that. But one of the things that you said. Uh, I want to rewind back to that because I think uh, maybe most of our listeners or, or some of our listeners at least keyed in on this and maybe have the same question. Uh, you were around when Motorola rolled out Six Sigma for the first time uh, with Bill Smith. I'm curious to hear what that was like. And I'm, I, like I said, I'm sure there's more listeners that are wondering the same thing, like you being in the position that you were uh, when Six Sigma began to get rolled out and talked about and communicated at Motorola um, for the first time, I mean, what what was that experience like for you? Okay, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure the first question a lot of your listeners have is, how is somebody like that still alive these days? But that's a separate question. <laughs> well, that was that was not that long ago. It was, it was '86. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but anyway. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I was walking around and I saw somebody with one of the little pin-on buttons on their shirts, and it had the word Six Sigma on it, and I had no clue what it meant. Mm. Uh, I truly, I just saw the words. And of course, a little while later, um, I got employed by Motorola's Government Electronics Group, uh, which they have since sold off. It's now part of General Dynamics. But uh, that, that was where Mike was working, and uh, uh, you know, Motorola was just in the process of wrapping up, having won the uh, first Baldrige Award and uh, stuff. Uh, I, I'm guessing some folks heard the story back in 1979. Uh, Motorola had their big corporate bigwigs getting together, and a guy named Art Sundry uh, stood up and uh, just roiled the room by saying, I don't know about you folks, but I think our quality stinks. <laughs> and, you know, he said that to a lot of managers who had gotten big bonuses uh, and stuff like that. But he, he actually started the awareness that led on the journey toward the Baldrige uh, stuff. Uh, Bill Smith, uh, you know, he, he kind of codified it uh, into, into an overall objective. Um, I, I actually, after I joined uh, Motorola GEG, um, he uh, 
he was actually kind enough to spend about an hour on the phone with me as a junior engineer, just kind of bringing me up to speed. So that's that's wow. a, a memory that uh, I, I definitely appreciate. Hmm. Um, a lot of what he said was completely over my head, and I don't know that I grasped even 10% of what he was trying to tell me, but uh, <laughs> I, was, I was completely aware that he was doing what he could to help. Yes. Um, but... Uh, you know, he was he was using the rolled throughput yield concept. He was saying if each individual step is at six sigma, you multiply those numbers of yields across, and you still have a chance of making it through the process without a defect. Mm. And you know, I, I I learned that part of it. Um, and then of course later on with Mike and stuff, I started learning about process capability and you know some of the math and some of the tools and stuff like that. Um, Motorola was a very interesting place. Uh, they they were coming on board, and there were a lot of folks who didn't really understand what Six Sigma was or how how it was going to help them. And uh, you know there was. Technologically speaking, it was a very opportunity-rich space, but just like any other organization, there were people more willing and less willing to take risks. Sure. Um, and one of the things that, that worked for me uh, was I was working in a place that sometimes built one-of-a-kind items. And I mean by one-of-a-kind, I mean the transponder for the Hubble Space Telescope one-of-a-kind. Mm. Uh, and. Uh, I like, I like to brag about the fact that, you know, when, when the Hubble first went up, remember, it was it was not working well. It was a real problem. Mm -hmm. uh, we like to brag that we sent back the bad news flawlessly. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I like it. That, that, was, that was our contribution. Um, so a lot of what we were doing was in the design side of Six Sigma. And, uh, you know, people were running computer simulations of the circuits that they planned on running. And uh, it, it occurred to me, uh, I don't think I invented any concept, but at least I became aware that every time you run a circuit design model, you're basically doing an experiment. Right. And you're seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that the statistical design of experiments might be a, a cool way to manipulate those things and, uh, you know, try to optimize performance. Sure. It, it took the better part of a year before I finally got my foot in the door with somebody who was willing to give it a try. Hmm. And uh, fortunately, I had a, I was working with a good team of engineers, and we kind of knocked it out of the park. And uh, I, I remember the dialogue basically changed once we shared our results and findings. The dialogue changed from, why should I do it? To how can I get some of that? Mm. And uh, we we rolled out a design of experiments class that's uh, that that Motorola University still uses to this day. Oh, that's amazing! And I trained all of the design engineers in its use and, and stuff like that, and uh, you know got a couple of awards and stuff like that. Um, so it was it was a big success, but uh, you know. I think I learned as much about trying to help people come up to speed on the opportunity. You know, people don't know what they don't know, and if you say, hey, let's try this really complex sounding thing, uh, you, you're going to have to build your case, and it's not going to come across easily and quickly. But uh, with, 
with persistence and clarity, you know, some someone somewhere will try it, and you only need one person to try it and win before the rest of the world will come along. Right, yeah. right. That formula has worked for me a few times. Uh, there have been one or two times where, you know, I never did get the one person willing to try it, but, uh, you know, you, you just got to go with what you can go with. That's right. Hello, everybody. I hate to interrupt this episode of the Lean Solutions Podcast, but I wanted to take a moment to introduce you to my book, Avoiding the Continuous Appearance Trap. And instead of you hearing from me, I'd like for you to hear from Paul Akers, author of Two Second Lean, and his thoughts around the book. Lean is for 2% of the people in the world. There are an awful lot of posers out there, people that do lean because they're mandated to do it. They think it will work. But there are very few people that embrace lean with their full heart, head, and emotion to create a true lean culture, one that is not full of posers and posturing, but full of authentic lean when they have total participation from everyone in the organization. Patrick's book uncovers the essence of what those organizations look like and what the posers look like. Caution, are you in the fake zone or the real zone? All right, now back to our episode. So uh, when, when uh, during that time, uh, you know, just thinking back to when, when Six Sigma was rolled out at Motorola, um, I have to imagine that there were people in the organization that had some lean background or some lean experience. How, how did, was there any confusion about, you know, what, what's the methodology we're using at Motorola or do these tools still fit if now we're going to these Six Sigma tools? You know, was there any discussion around that? You know, it, it's interesting. The only thing that I found that really kind of felt fell in line with lean was there was always an interest in reducing cycle time. Mm -hmm. And really the the two primary uh, overarching metrics of the organization were defect rates and cycle times. Okay. And, you know, they, they had an overall goal to... Uh, cut defect times by uh, 10x every two years, mm -hmm. and I don't remember what the cycle time was. I think it was to cut it in half every X number of years. I don't want to, I don't want to speculate on what X was. Sure. Um, but in terms of the methodologies and how you did it, um, at that time, you know, I was not made aware of the, you know, the seven ways, sure, the eight sure. ways or stuff like that. It was really a a later gig with Motorola where I started seeing those things. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, we did a number of things that took waste out. We certainly recognized that the hidden factory and rework uh, was a big factor in cycle time. Mm -hmm. You know, any time you got to do something again, you got to put in the time that it takes to do it again. Right. Um, and even before I officially started recognizing what people were calling lean, uh, Motorola had used design for Six Sigma uh, on the Iridium payloads. Are you familiar with those guys? No. Mm -mm. Uh, Iridium was a is a uh, constellation of satellites. Uh, they are above us uh, and they're floating. Uh, 
uh, north to south pole orientation. Okay. Okay. And there's a series of bands of these things. Um, and the original number was going to be 77, which is the atomic number of iridium. So that's where the name came from. Um, and uh, the idea is every single place on Earth, you have a line of sight to one of those satellites at all times. Hmm. And so therefore you have cellular equivalent service no matter where you are, even in the middle of the ocean. Uh, this was when cell was just coming on board. I thought it was going to be used in, you know, like remote land areas. I had no idea how ubiquitous cell phone towers were going to become. Sure. But still, if you're out in a ship at sea or something like that, Iridium is still available to you. And the reason I'm bringing this up in terms of lean and cycle time is um, they came up with a manufacturability approach, which isn't exactly the same as lean, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a cousin. And uh, in the industry, building a satellite was something that takes between 18 and 36 months for a single payload. Uh, the Iridium factory was delivering a payload once a week. Wow. Yeah, we had, we had a floor. Now, a lot of it was assembling pre-manufactured modules and stuff, but the whole mm -hmm. fact that they had designed it all that way and, and brought it together, uh, it, it really was a, a very impressive thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it only lasted for so long because the total constellation and spares is a finite number, but it, it, it achieved something in terms of lean and cycle time and efficiency that, uh, you know, I, I didn't even know it was lean, but it was sure uh, mind-blowing to, to to watch it happen sure sure it's it's that's amazing and, it, and it's funny how uh when we think about you know back before we knew lean was lean or before we called it lean maybe someone else did at that time but th there are so many concepts that you know are, are just simple concepts or you know basic basic things that you know fit directly into the lean methodology that we can say you know, that, oh, that's that's lean or that's continuous improvement or, you know, whatever it might be. I, yeah. You mentioned McDonald's earlier, right? When when I was younger, I, I worked at McDonald's and okay. it wasn't until later on, you know, now I look back and I go, oh, those are lean concepts. Those are, you know, you know, it, yeah. And I, I don't know if you've seen ever seen the movie The Founder. I've talked about that on the podcast before. Uh, about McDonald's. I've seen clips from it. I've seen clips. I haven't seen the movie. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a great movie, but uh, you, you mentioned the spits, you know, spaghetti diagrams and um, they, in the founder, they actually do a, a bit of a three P activity and kind of track some of their motion waste. And it's pretty, pretty amazing to see how some of that is, you know, was done. And again, they didn't, they didn't think of it as lean. They didn't call it lean. Um, they just knew that, you know, we need to reduce the time that it takes to get a, a burger from order to into the customer's hands. And so how are we going to do that? We, let's reduce our steps. Let's, you know, let's practice, let's figure out, you know, where we can uh, cut out some waste. So, um, so yeah. for you, when it came to lean later on, you, you, you read a book and you were introduced to a book and, and lean, uh, you know, became available to you. Um, what happened after that then? How did you, uh, take those lean concepts, tools, and then start adding to your tool belt? Well, 
uh, I, I actually, uh, you know, I I read the book on SMED, and uh, uh, to, to your comment about McDonald's, I'm I'm very curious whether uh, those crews that do such an amazing job at pit stops, uh, whether they formally looked at lean and SMED or and understood, you know, internal and external setup, or right. whether they just figured it out for themselves. I, I would love <laughs> to know whether that happened. But that's a great question. I've never thought about that because uh, we yeah, obviously I, I mean, use the same thing for training as well when it comes to SMED and. Oh yeah, when you look at setup time, that there, there's no no better fast example of, of internal versus external setup. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, to your question, um, you know, I, as, as I started understanding more about what, uh, what Shingo was saying, I read some more of his books. Um, I got to a, another Motorola facility. Um, I, I also read uh, The Gold by Goldratt. Ah, yes. And, uh, you know, learn understand came to understand the idea of Herbie and, and stuff like that, you know, find the stuff that's slowest. And I I got to a Motorola facility where Herbie happened to be uh, the robot that picked and placed components on uh, printed wiring boards, and Herbie was the change over time. Okay. Uh, turns out it was 42 minutes, and uh, we... We got it down to 12 minutes, and by that time, Herbie was farther downstream for a little while. Uh, but but um, what was interesting is the reason for the long changeover was there was a cultural mentality there that said, we don't have time to put these components back in their assigned storage spaces. So, uh, you know, the, the place just looked like a garbage dump all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as they practiced a little bit of what I did not yet know was 5S, uh, lo and behold, they could find things, and that's 90% of what took the change over time down. Wow. Uh, Sometimes it's that simple. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it was that simple. And, and then later on, there were some folks working there who had taken formal training in lean and they did a couple of week long Kaizen's and I just, I sat in and I watched and I, you know, I learned tack time and I, I learned, you know, about the kinds of waste and stuff. And it, it all just resonated because it was in concert with the other stuff I, I looked at. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, I, I had already understood the concept of rework as, as a, you know, one, of, it, it just kind of, came along and picked itself up. Uh, I was working at a plastics company where they they had like 25 presses on the floor, but there was never a day I could come out to the floor and there weren't five of them down in various stages of getting them back up and running. And without any formal training, I said, go to this machine, fix it, get it running, then go to the next machine, you know, get something running mm -hmm. rather than be working a little bit on all of them and have all of them down. Right. And even though I didn't have formal training, they were getting ready to buy a 27th machine. Oh. And, and even then I realized, don't buy a new machine until you're using the ones that are down all the darn time. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, don't, you don't need a new machine. You need to use the ones you got better. That's right. Uh, so Common sense, you know, right? It's, it, seem, it would seem that way. 
yeah for, for some reason some of that was just kind of you know i don't know built into my dna or something like that it's just you know kind of my my nerdly curse that i just kind of saw things that way <laughs> and then lean kind of put some formal structure on some of them that's and, right you and me both yeah and, and i think you know i'm i'm you and I are far from the only people that just kind of see it. Right. And sometimes when you get a little structure to add to it, 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 it just finishes the job. Yes, it does. <laughs> well, Jonathan, you, you mentioned a couple of problems that you've dealt with over the last few years and how you've applied some Lean and Six Sigma uh, tools. Uh, what, what would you say from a problem-solving perspective, how has Lean and Six Sigma impacted your approach to solving problems? Uh, for, for all intents and purposes, Lean and Six Sigma are my approach to solving mm -hmm. problems. Uh, I just I, I understand what the current problem is, and somewhere in those various toolkits is almost always uh, a solution for the for the situation. Um, I think I'm reasonably good at figuring out which of several tools is more likely to meet with a certain situation mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm reasonably uh, reasonably good at not having an ego. So if that tool doesn't seem to be working, I'll, I'll go switch to something else. Yes. Uh, and but, and uh, when you understand the tools well enough, uh, you can be flexible with the tools too and apply them in, in any industry and in, in any, you know, to particularly any, you know, problem. If it, Like you said, if you can find the right tool or, or maybe tweak it a bit to make it work, um, that I always explain it in that in in the way that kind of like you did earlier, where um, you know I have this tool belt and I want to have the right tool for the job. So it doesn't matter if it's a Six Sigma tool or a Lean tool. I don't really care where it comes from. I just want it on my tool belt so that when the problem comes, I can try this tool or try this tool or you know make sure that I have the right tool on my tool belt so that I can apply it to whatever problem I'm dealing with. Yeah, I agree definitely on the same thing. And, and you also mentioned something that, that resonates with flexibility with the tools. Um, I've, I've seen a few people that get really twisted around the axle, whether it's a lean tool or a Six Sigma tool, to use the tool, quote, the right way, the way it's uh, called for. And uh, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with adjusting the tool and using it in a little bit of a less traditional way if that's what, you know, gets the job done. Yeah. Um, I've even, uh, on occasion, given presentations to things like local ASQ chapters, uh, where I call uh, the, the tools of Lean and Six Sigma um, wonderful servants but dreadful masters. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you make them work for you. So once upon a time, I was doing a value stream map, but it also made sense for me to put the value stream steps in a swim lane sequence. And so that's what I did, you know, and, you know, some purists tried to say that that's not what you do. And I figured, hey, it's it's conveying something that's useful for this process in this context. It's what I'm doing. That's right. Uh, funny thing, Jonathan, I actually use a swim lane for my value stream maps. Anytime I map a an administrative process as a value stream, uh, mm -hmm. I always use swim lanes in my value stream map. So <laughs> you stole my idea before you even met me. <laughs> so I'm with you there. Um, 
speaking of uh, before we met in your earlier years, if you could go back to to those days, maybe back at Motorola or sometime there, um, what advice would you give to yourself in those earlier years? Uh, you know, maybe pertaining to Lean Six Sigma or um, you know anything that you would later learn and be able to apply. Um. Well, one of the lessons that I ended up having to learn kind of the hard way comes back to that time that I, I got people to use design of experiments with the uh, circuit design uh, learn that, uh, you know, getting tools and methodologies used is not about the technology or the, the factual correctness. It's about getting the people comfortable with what's happening and bringing them along and making sure that they can be part of the success and, you know, make, making sure that it's something that's win-win. Um, I, I, I trod upon a few toes back in those days and I, I harmed a few relationships in, in my attempt to steamroll things and, and uh, stuff. Uh, I'd like to think I, I learned from it. Um, some years later, I was working at a Kraft Nabisco factory in Philadelphia, and uh, I, I discovered using a measurement system analysis that uh, some of the scales that were, they were using to weigh out, like flour and sugar and stuff like that, uh, weren't giving good numbers. Hmm. And uh, I went to the person who had installed the good cell systems that was delivering the data and I, I basically showed him my data between behind closed doors and uh, you know he he wasn't happy to see it and he sent me off to do other tasks and I went and did the other tasks and basically we strategized together how to make it so that fixing the problem would actually make him look like the hero for taking his good system and making it better Mm. Um, and and that way, you know, he didn't have to be afraid that I was going to go around and, and, you know, expose him for some kind of a fool. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to see the problem fixed. And uh, in, in the course, yes, we fixed the problem, and, and that led to some very good benefits for the client. And, you know, I got an ally and supporter. So, you know, it. It, it took me a, a little while to come up to speed on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes I, I get impatient with people who don't see my uh, inherent brilliance right away, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, only about 7 billion people. On, I, I do what I can and yes. uh, try, to, try to show some progress in that regard. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely I, one I, of the... the uh, uh, the, the things that I think a lot of leaders, uh, maybe lean leaders, uh, miss is, you know, making sure that you are maybe not a lot of leaders. I guess I shouldn't say it that way. But I have I have ran into pe people, leaders and organizations that tend to not understand the power that can come in giving credit to other people, even though you may lead oh, yeah. them to a solution, right? But give them the credit, allow them to step back and, and just be quiet about it and, and allow them to have the credit. And the, the, the impact and the benefits that come with that are, you know, astronomical. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, between the fact that they become your, your uh, allies and supporters, um, 
if, if you're in the room and they're using some methodology that obviously you brought in the door, you know, mm -hmm. people will figure that out between the lines and, and the credit will kind of wash over you as you need to. Sure. But you don't, you don't have to stand there and beat your own drum for that to happen. Exactly. Uh, you know, the, the one or two times that I ran into a few toxic people that tried to steal credit from me, uh, you know, and, and try to hog it off of themselves, um, it, it, it didn't go so great for them mm -hmm. uh, because they were shooting down their own credibility and uh, they, they really didn't need my assistance in that regard. Right, right, exactly. Uh, Jonathan, so we obviously you have a ton of experience uh, and, and I'd be curious to hear, I'm sure the listeners would too, uh, just about maybe what you would consider that some of the biggest factors in impacting the effectiveness of lean transformations, you know, again, ac across the, the, the companies that you've worked for or, you know, maybe um, companies that you've been a part of, uh, what, what would you say are some of those large factors that you see that, you know, either positively impact or maybe even negatively impact the effectiveness of, of lean transformations? Well, by coincidence, you've actually touched on something that I'm, I'm involved at the very beginning of a book project about because mm. I, I think I've, I've started to see um, transitioning from what's less effective to what's more effective. Um, I have done a ton of consulting both internally and externally with organizations that tried to start with the tools, you know. Yes value stream mapping and, uh, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, if, if you just start with the tools, <clears throat> you don't have anybody out in the, uh, where the work is happening who understands what they are or what they're for. Really what you need to do is you got to start with the people. You've got to start with their understanding and the culture and why are we trying to do things different and how will it be good and what do we got to do to make those happen. Because especially in Lean, so many of the improvements don't require fancy tools. You don't even need PDCA for some things. Some things you just need your eye and your brain in a minute to go make a simple change. And, uh, you know, that's... You, even though the folks like uh, Emai and Ishikawa and Ono used to say, you know, you don't need fancy tools to make a lot of the improvements. That's right. What you need is for the organization to get out of people's way and, and let it happen. And so uh, if, you, if you start with that side of it, um, as time goes on, you can layer in the tools on more of a just-in-time basis and, and let those... Let those come along, let the organization grow, let them pick up those skills. But, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've paid a lot of bills training rooms full of black belts. And, and you know, I've, I've, I worked hard and I did a good job and I don't regret doing it. But at the same time, it became a theme that these black belts would get to the improve phase and they'd go out there and try to do something different on the process and there'd be a manager saying, you're not messing with my process because, mm. uh, you, you know, they hadn't been prepared for it. So, you know, we've, we've had kind of the cart ahead of the horse for several decades now. Uh, my, my book project is to try to kind of get the, 
cart horse relationship back where it belongs. Oh, I love that, and and much needed because I I experienced some of the same too. Uh, so I, I'll be looking forward to to that coming out in the in the future. We'll have to have you back on the show to to talk about that specific topic. To. Yes, um, Jonathan, it, it's been great to to have you on uh, the Lean Solutions podcast. What uh, if if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, um, you know, with questions or anything, is LinkedIn the best? Teach me. I, I get on LinkedIn once or twice a day, so it's it's fast. And in my LinkedIn profile, I also have contact information. So perfect. If you find my profile, just look at look at the connection information, and you can you can reach me quite easily. Perfect. Oh, that's great. Um, so, Jonathan, yeah, it's been great to have you on. Appreciate your your insight and and just hearing about your background and just the stories of, you know, the, the experiences that you've had uh, in your Lean and Six Sigma journey. Uh, and, and I look forward to having you back on at some point in the future to talk about your book. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Lean Solutions Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. If you feel so inclined, please give us a review. Thank you so much.